Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. For Russia, the year 1837 began with the death of the poet Alexander Pushkin in a duel and ended with a fire that destroyed the Tsar's winter palace. These two happenstance events in the imperial capital of St. Petersburg frame a series of extraordinary changes that occurred that year throughout Russia. For historian Paul Worth, these events amount to a quiet revolution, one that changed Russia and provided it with features, religious, cultural, intellectual, institutional, political, and ethnic, that are visible to this day. Paul W. Worth is professor in the Department of History at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, the author of numerous studies on religion, religious freedom, and the role of religious institutions in Russian imperial governance. His most recent book is 1837, Russia's Quiet Revolution, now available from Oxford University Press, and it is the focus of our conversation today. Paul Worth, welcome to Historically Thinking. Uh, Great to be here. It beats anything else I'd be doing, and I'm sure it's going to be a genuine hoot. (laughs) <laughs> well, hoot hoot. Um, so let's start by talking about a little context for those of us like me who are ignorant of Russian history in general, and and, and including and very much so early nineteenth century Russian history. What has been going on to this point, and what's the lay of the land in eighteen thirty seven? Well, if we think about the situation uh, in the maybe the eighteen thirties. I think we can say, first of all, it's been uh, a couple of decades earlier, we had uh, the massive war with Napoleon. So that's cast, of course, a long shadow uh, on the subsequent uh, decades. Um, The ruler at the time is Nicholas I. He became uh, the emperor in 1825 and actually the midst of an insurrection known as the Decemberist Uprising. He would rule the country for the next uh, 30 years or so. And generally speaking, this period is understood in Russian history as a period of conservative stasis and stagnation. Uh, Nicholas I, I think, is well known, perhaps above all, for matters of an intense censorship, as I say, an intense uh, conservatism generally. Uh, It it would appear, especially looking from later in the 19th century, when more dramatic changes uh, affect the country, that really not very much happens in this period. And what I'm trying to do in this book is to suggest that actually this is uh, a really, really dynamic and consequential period, and that in some ways I think one can say that Russia enters modernity. Uh, one can argue about what that means exactly, but really in some ways the uh, 19th century, I think, starts for Russia here uh, in the 1830s. And so what I'm trying to do in this book is to try to demonstrate this really consequential and dynamic character of really the 1830s more generally, especially the second half of the 1830s, and in order to do this, what, I, what I've done is I've selected one year that st- struck me as being especially consequential, especially uh, eventful, and that's the year 1837. And it was really those two bookend events that you referred to, the death of Russia's greatest poet, Alexander Pushkin, in a duel in January, and the near-complete destruction of the Winter Palace in December. These represent the kind of bookends, but there's many other things that are going on over the course of that year and really the 1830s. And so the idea is to demonstrate the dynamism, consequence, and significance of this period that might otherwise seem to be one of stagnation uh, and just pure conservatism. So let's begin with Pushkin. Uh, You begin with a great um, metaphor, thought experiment, uh, visualization aid, uh, that in 1937, 100 years after his death, if we were in Moscow in the midst of Stalin's great purge, uh, people literally diving out the apartment window when they hear the secret police uh, draw, drawing up at the apartment block. Uh, nevertheless, 1937 is also the year of the Pushkin centennial. We're surrounded by both terror and Pushkin. Um, as I said to you before, I think that, uh, you know, there's, I've read Dostoevsky, I've read Tolstoy, I've, I've read Turgenev. Uh, I haven't read Pushkin. And I suspect there are lots of other English uh, readers and speakers who are in the same boat. We've read the great 19th century Russian novels, as many as kind of have fallen into our way or we've sought them out. But my suspicion is 
not many of us have sought out Pushkin. And yet, whenever I speak with a Russian and the question, Pushkin comes up, there is a almost, it's talk about stimulus response. The response is pretty close to something like religious zeal. I think it's the way that maybe 19th century uh, English speakers talked about Shakespeare. Um, maybe less so about Shakespeare now. Can you explain Pushkin? Because you're, you're, what you're describing here is not merely the uh, his death, but also the foundations of what you describe later as the cult of Pushkin. Yeah, I think that uh, Pushkin really occupies a, a unique place in Russian culture and Russian literature, and this is not any particular great and new insight. Um, Pushkin, I think, is without question considered to be the great, greatest Russian poet. I probably actually would agree with that assessment. And I think there's a, there is a veneration that's characteristic uh, of, I think, Russian attitudes towards Pushkin uh, that one can have a variety of different views about other writers uh, but for Pushkin, there can really be uh, only veneration. And I think this, 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 uh, this veneration, this cult, if you will, is something that actually does not appear immediately after his death uh, in 1837, though there are sort of pieces of it there. It develops actually more gradually, and I try to show this in the book, gradually over the course of the Tsarist period, where I think there comes this moment when the Tsarist regime itself, and of course, uh, members of the intelligentsia in Russia, uh, they realize what an important figure he's been, and that it's uh, right and appropriate that one should basically construct a cult around him. And then the Soviet Union, I think, basically builds on this uh, still further, I think even elevating uh, probably the Pushkin cult uh, to its highest levels, one can say. And I think it becomes, in some ways, one could say, almost quite literally an article of faith, though I would emphasize that I do think that uh, Pushkin's pure uh, literary talent, his sheer brilliance, uh, and genius obviously have something to do with this as well. So the book is trying to account for the specific ways, I suppose, that his death, his death in this uh, romantic duel, which had to do with the excessive attentions of a Frenchman in Russian service at the time towards his wife, how the manner of his death in 1837, when he was, by the way, only 18, he was himself only 37 years old, he was born in 1799, uh, how this played a fundamental role basically in constructing uh, the cult. That is, the idea here is that the manner of his death, his death in this romantic duel, I think becomes a fundamental part of the, of the cult of, uh, of Pushkin. Clearly, he would have been venerated and already was being venerated even before this, uh, even before uh, his death in the duel. But I think the manner of his death, I think, creates a, a, a tremendous imprint uh, and uh, shapes his cult in a really profound and interesting way, uh, really up all the way up until the present. Um, a literary scholar in 1859, a man by the name of Apollon Grigoriev, uh, coined this phrase, uh, Pushkin is our everything. And so uh, basically what I'm trying to account for is the ways in which his death in this duel contribute to the elaboration of that, uh, of that declaration, which I think continues to shape the ways in which Russians today think about Pushkin in the place, in the pantheon of Russian culture. So did Pushkin, what, at some point in the 19th century, Russian literature became inescapably part of, I guess, a developing world culture, a world literary culture, world musical culture. Um, did that came later? Did, did uh, when Tolstoy is starting to, you know, meditate over what will become war and peace, is he saying, I have to be as good as Pushkin? Um, what, does, what role does Pushkin uh, have for later artists, literary artists in particular, as they are beginning their projects? Well, I think, I mean, if one, can make, if one talks about Tolstoy and Pushkin, I mean, of course, uh, Tolstoy writes primarily in prose. Pushkin wrote some in prose, but was uh, famous principally for uh, writing in verse. So I think there's a fundamental uh, distinction uh, in that regard, maybe the way to think about this is, and there's another chapter that has to do with uh, the appearance of what people claimed at the time to be the appearance of the first Russian opera, A Life mm. for, the, for the Tsar by Mikhail Glinka. I think there's a way in which Russia is, in a sense, trying to establish itself uh, as a participant as an equal participant with the rest of Europe, uh, and they understand the world in a cultural sense, in a civilizational sense, 
uh, in a narrow way as consisting primarily of Europe, that Russia in a sense is attempting to occupy its place in uh, basically in, uh, in world culture, if you will, and a point that you yourself actually just made. And so I think it's a little bit harder, I think, for uh, Pushkin to occupy this place because the matter has to do with poetry. There have been some very good translations of his poetry that actually do capture, I think, the original, that is, uh, translations into English. But there's, of course, a way in which one can fully appreciate uh, Pushkin only in the original Russian. That is the brilliance, the turns of phrase, uh, just the wisdom well beyond his years that I think you see contained in these brief aphorisms and so forth. So it seems to me that um, really the way to think about this is to think about this moment when uh, Russia seeks to enter world civilization, world culture as an equal participant. That is, there's an, uh, an element of an inferiority complex, but there's a moment I think that comes in the 1830s when Russia seeks to assert itself and when Russian, particular representatives of the regime in Russia, uh, in light of uh, revolution, especially the uh, revolution in France in 1830, uh, be Russia begins to think of itself as in some ways, uh, maybe not superior, but in some ways equal. And so I think there are, uh, there are ways in which Pushkin fits into this larger sort of uh, picture. One other example that I'll give uh, was a famous uh, painting that I discussed briefly in the book by Karl Buteloff called The Last Days of Pompeii. It was painted in Italy in 1834. And this also signaled a kind of uh, um, entry of Russia into world culture, in this case, in the case uh, of a painting. So I think that's the way in which uh, Pushkin's significance, I think in particular for maybe the 19th century more broadly, I would put it precisely there, I suppose. Uh -huh. So... People, um, even if they haven't read Pushkin, have heard of Pushkin. They've heard of Glinka, and and um, they know of Glinka as the first in these dazzling nineteenth-century Russian musical talents, um, which help along with Wagner reshape uh, music as we know it. Um, but uh, you had a chapter on Peter Chadayev, and I had never heard of Chadayev, and I felt after the chapter was over, I felt really embarrassed I hadn't. And he fits into this uh, the story that you're telling about where Russia sees itself in relation to Europe. So could you explain Shadayev and the, the controversy that he initiated and, and sort of uh, what came out of it? Yeah, I, th I think you're right. You've put it well. Uh, Peter Chadayev uh, was an intellectual. And in 1829, he produced a series of philosophical letters, the first of which uh, was finally published uh, only in 1836, that is in late 1836, almost the same time uh, that Glinka's uh, opera was premiered. That was in November of 1836. And actually the events leading to uh, the duel uh, of Pushkin in early 1837, were also uh, those events were also un unfolding simultaneously with that. Uh, and so what I think what Chadayev did was to raise fundamental questions about Russia's place in basically in world civilization. And his view, especially in the first philosophical letter, there were actually eight of them, the first philosophical letter was uh, basically a very negative assessment of Russia. That is that Russia had contributed virtually nothing to world civilization. It was kind of nomadic. It was uh, off in its kind of hermitage in its monastery. Um, and it had been separated from uh, European, broader European cultural and intellectual developments uh, by its its orthodoxy, its orthodox Christianity, which was, of course, one of the main attributes uh, of Russianness, of Russian culture, of Russian specificity. So as whereas many regarded orthodoxy as a positive attribute, for Chidayev, the issue was that orthodoxy, in a sense, had cut Russia off from developments in Europe. And he was, uh, in essence, uh, uh, a, a great admirer of uh, Roman Catholicism in, in, in particular. And so uh, many people had actually read this letter in manuscript, many uh, precisely because there were issues having to do with censorship. A lot of text circulated in manuscript form. Uh, and many people had read this, uh, and it wasn't terribly controversial. But when it was published in 1836, uh, there were howls of peak. There were all kinds of uh, protestations that, uh, that basically uh, Chedayev had uh, brutally and savagely criticized uh, the country, and so forth and so on. And the regime, uh, in essence, comes down on Chedayev, uh, prohibits, actually closes down the journal in which the first philosophical letter had been published, 
prohibits uh, Chidayev from publishing anything ever again. And indeed, he never published anything else. He did write some things. He died in 1856. Uh, and he was actually declared to be mad. That is, the proposition was that only somebody who was actually mad could produce uh, hmm. such an attack on Russian culture and civilization. So, so, so that, uh, that didn't begin with the Brezhnev regime. Putting no, people no, in psychiatric say, hospitals. <laughs> yeah, one could say that there was uh, there was a precedent. There was a precedent here. He was basically placed under house arrest, and then uh, he wrote a very interesting text in 1837, and that becomes in the centerpiece because the book is about 1837. That is called an apology of a madman, which is obviously is in some sense sort of tongue in cheek, and I think there's a great deal of uh, confusion or uncertainty, and even in my own mind about what, what the relationship between the apology of a madman is to the first philosophical letter. There seems to be some rethinking, but in some sense, Chadayev basically um, doubles down on some of the declarations that he made in the earlier text. And so I guess the largest significance that I would point to in this is that on the one hand, I think uh, Chadayev, what he does is he provides basically the first sort of philosophically grounded concept of history and Russia's place in history. And in this sense, he actually generates or helps to generate a large debate precisely about Russia's place in the wider world and the broader sweep of human history. This gives rise, among other things, to a debate between Westernizers who uh, tend to want to emulate Europe and Slavophiles who tend to emphasize the particularity uh, and uh, peculiarity uh, of Russia. Uh, that's, on, uh, that's on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, I'm trying to remember what it is. It seems to me I've forgotten what it is, but I'll, we'll come back to it later on. Um, I've, yeah, I've just blanked on it. Sorry. It's okay. Um, so he has, um, so if, if you're all, all vaguely familiar with debates in, within Russia, Imperial Russia over the, until 1917, even in some ways beyond, uh, these arguments, Chdayev has many intellectual children then, and this debate continues and continues. I mean, it can be said to, in, some, in many ways to continue to this day. I think that's right. I mean, I think that one of the issues that we see today is there's a, a continued, I think, questioning of basically Russia's place uh, in the larger world, in the larger world, especially in a kind of in a sign of a civilizational sense. One can see that in contemporary Russia, uh, whereby I think the regime today represents itself in some manner as a kind of conservative force. Uh, that actually seeks to uphold some of the kind of classical civilizational values of Europe itself. And in a lot of ways, it seems to me even just sort of diplomatically and sort of culturally civilizationally. And the situation that we see right now, let's say in the beginning of the third decade of the 21st century, it seems actually quite similar in a lot of ways to the situation in the 1830s, where one has in a sense notionally a kind of common European home of sorts, and yet Russia is uh, quite on the edge of it. Obviously, it's excluded from the European Union, doesn't appear to have any aspirations actually to join it, and sees itself as a distinct force. I think most people look at Russia now and see something uh, worrying, sort of conservative, uh, in a, culturally conservative, certainly. And this is, uh, I think, uh, politically conservative. And this is the way in which I think a lot of people in, let's say, Western or Central Europe in the 19th century also viewed Russia at that time, let's say in the 1830s, uh, 40s, uh, really throughout the 19th century, one could say. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a real, I think there's a real uh, trajectory that basically flows from this, one could say. Yeah, there's a, I'm sure it's an apocryphal quote uh, from Metternich uh, to Napoleon. Europe, your majesty, what is Europe? The post road ends 10 kilometers east of Vienna. Yeah, correct. I think the, there's an interesting idea that it seems to me that especially in maybe East Central Europe and going eastward from there, um, each sort of society or group sees themselves maybe quite, you know, as basically the end of Europe. And just on the other side are the barbarians. Uh, supposedly the Dutch said, well, actually, the barbar barbarism starts with the Germans just next door. And everybody sort of yeah. says, you know, the, the people just next to us, we're just inside, yeah. but the next uh, basically are savage barbarian and all the rest. Yeah, it, it, that 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 comment must not have been lost on any Magyar who who heard it. Um, yeah, the uh, you in, in, we then have a, a number of other sort of uh, non uh, less less into elevated intellectual, cultural, artistic um, events, but really really interesting ones. And one of them is for me was this the journey of the crown prince. Um, could you describe that journey and its importance? Right. The heir to the throne, uh, Alexander Nikolaevich, uh, he would become the emperor in uh, 1855, and he was actually killed by terrorists 
1881, so he had ruled the country for a, a you know, quarter of a century or so. Uh, when he was a young man, he was about 19 years old in 1837. His father, Nicholas I, uh, determined that he should take actually two major trips, one inside Russia and then subsequently in 1838 to 39 to uh, Europe. But the trip inside Russia, there was really nothing comparable to it in terms of its size and scale. He was traveling for a good portion of the year, I think started uh, in uh, late April, early May, and really was on the road uh, all the way until December or so. And he traveled about 20,000 kilometers. He was the first representative of the ruling Romanov dynasty actually to visit Siberia. Siberia, of course, had been part of Russia for more than two centuries at that point. Uh, he only visited Western Siberia, but for the people in Siberia, this was an extraordinary event. And just more generally, he uh, visited all these various towns and villages and even just postal stations along the way where they changed horses. Uh, and it, I think for a, a large number of people in Russia, uh, 1837, people literally wrote almost exactly these words, was unforgettable precisely because they had had the opportunity to see the heir to the throne. Now, of course, emperors had uh, had traveled before. In that sense, this was not unique. But the scope and the scale and the fact that he went as this young man, I think there was a way in which this was uh, unique uh, and unprecedented. And I'll note something else that it uh, it was also a moment when uh, Russia had had elements of a periodical press before this, and there was a lot of censorship, of course, but this was an, area, an era when one had more of a periodical press. And so his basically almost his every movement, especially in the early stages of the trip in May, June, July of 1837, virtually every movement of his was covered by the press, uh, the uh, intense emotion, uh, the raptures is a term that was frequently used uh, by which with which he was uh, greeted by crowds. Uh, this was described at great length and then many of the places that he visited and their various attributes, that is the, store, the historical uh, monuments that were there, the nature of their uh, industry and uh, production, uh, the nature of the perhaps the various ethnic groups that he encountered along the way. All of this became part of uh, this press coverage. And in some ways, I think there is a way in which the possibility of celebrity was appearing in a way, and I think one can see this in some of the intellectual and musical figures that we discussed earlier, mm -hmm. an element of celebrity is appearing, I think, in Russia in a way that I think it didn't exist before. And this trip really, I think, uh, seeks to... Uh, represents, demonstrates the, the, the extent to which this is true. I'll add here too that it was really important for the continuation of the dynasty to ensure that Alexander Nikolaevich, the heir to the throne, that he occupied an, an appropriate place, that he developed his own kind of scenario of a relationship with people, which was based on the concept of love and, and a sense and affection. That is, in other words, that the ground was paved for his eventual uh, ascension to the throne, which indeed happened in 1855. This trip was a fundamental part of that. It was understood as a kind of betrothal uh, between uh, hmm. the, uh, the uh, heir to the throne and uh, the people of Russia. Let me pick up on a, a few things there. One, one is, it, it, for a medieval early modern uh, scholar, this is a, a sort of bog standard um, imperial or royal progress, uh, sort of prior to the age of absolutism, where Louis the Fourteenth, and everyone copies him by find, finding a building a really nice palace and staying there. Um, Elizabeth the First traveled all the time. Medieval kings traveled all the time from castle to castle. Um, so this is not this is not uh, new. But what's fascinating is to find its importance in 1837, and then to link it with, as you say, this growing cult of celebrity that you see with Pushkin, and then you see with Glinka. And that maybe requires a steam-powered printing press to really, uh, maybe it requires a, a steam-powered printing press to really create celebrity. And so now the crown prince is becoming the kind of person you'd read about in the Daily Mail or on page six of the New York Post. Yeah, I think basically building on that, I, I agree with much of what you said. I think the other issue is that there is a way in which, in contrast to some of the earlier periods that you mentioned, there is basically this, uh, this specter of revolution. And so I mm. think there is a, a, str a stronger sense of imperative that the regime and the present ruler, but also the future one, that they establish some degree of kind of popular acclaim. Obviously, we're not going to have anything uh, democratic. We're not going to have a representative assembly in Russia, not until 1905 or 1906. But there's a sense that elements of popular sovereignty need to be incorporated into the scenarios of rule. And I don't think this is true, certainly before 1789 
And I think also 1830, again, I recall that the French, the revolution in France in 1830 has occurred really only a few years prior to this. Uh, there was also a Polish challenge to Russian rule at about the same time in 1830 to 31. And I think these factors, the sense that the political terrain is actually changing in Europe more generally and also potentially for Russia itself, I think does create new imperatives, new requirements for the regime to invest itself with a kind of popular character. I mean, we see this developed to a much greater extent, I think, in a variety of monarchies in Europe later in the 19th century. But once again, it seems to me that many of the roots, at least in the Russian case, I think can be found here. So the imperatives are somewhat different now. There's a way in which uh, the ruler, especially the future ruler, needs to establish a sense of acclaim and connection with the population. I don't think that, that was true to the same extent as it was earlier. I mean, to some extent, of course, that was true, but I think the, the specter of revolution and democratization just simply didn't exist uh, in, let's say, the 18th century and earlier in the way that they do in the 19th. Yeah, that's a that's a very nice point. Uh, they, they uh, say like, English kings were certainly worried about rebellion, but it was rebellion by their barons. You know, which at least in England happened right. with alarming, alarming frequency, and those progresses are are designed often to uh, defang uh, barons, sometimes by bankrupting them by hosting the royal court for a week. Um, the this is uh, this is a this is different, and it's really interesting that here is the archetypal absolutist government of nineteenth uh, century Europe, which is worried about public opinion. Um, it has to have the crown prince dance with people. I mean, that's that's necessary. Yeah. And that's not, we might not think that with uh, until we start to like confront reality. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, there are sort of um, new, new requirements, uh, new necessities uh, in a context where revolution basically is casting the shadow. Well, and let's talk about steam powered uh, printing presses. Um, one of the events of 1837 is a decree concerning provincial newspapers. And I moved to that chapter with perhaps a little less enthusiasm than for other ones. Could not figure out why this is so important. Uh, but you persuade me it's really important. So, why is this decree concerning provincial newspapers important? Yeah, I'll, I'll agree. It's kind of a hard sell, like basically let's <laughs> talk about provincial newspapers. But I think this is really, really an important moment. There's a decree, basically, there's actually a, a series of important reforms to provincial administration that occur in uh, the middle of 1837. And out of this comes one particular reform or one particular innovation, which is really quite important. And that is uh, the introduction in 42 European provinces, and eventually it will spread to other ones, 42 European provinces of provincial newspapers. These were designed initially simply to simplify administration, that is to make it easier to communi so communicate sort of uh, basic facts and informations that previously took uh, correspondence, but now could be done basically in this kind of printed form to newspapers. But every one of these newspapers had an unofficial section, which was to be devoted to, in essence, really kind of almost uh, anything within the parameters, of course, of the existing uh, censorship regime. And this really came, I think, in many of the provinces to relate to the, the nature, the character, the curiosities of each uh, particular province. That is its history, uh, monuments, uh, its geography, uh, how many rainbows it had experienced over the course of the last 36 years or whatever. And so there was a, a, an opportunity then, actually not only an opportunity, there was really the requirement. And this, is, this, this actually does come from above in the sense that these provinces are required to produce these newspapers. Some of them have great difficulty in doing this because they don't have the intellectual resources to be able to edit an interesting newspaper. But why this is so important, it seems to me, is that the provinces of Russia had been created in 1775 in an earlier reform. And a lot of these provinces, they had appeared suddenly largely for administrative purposes. Uh, perhaps they were beginning to establish a kind of character or an identity. Uh, it's kind of hard to tell, but I think the, the uh, newspapers was one of the principal mechanisms for investing those provinces with a particular identity in each, uh, in each case. The number of newspapers in Russia basically triples or quadruples overnight on January 1st, 1838, when the newspapers begin to appear as a result of this 1837 decree. And so uh, what one sees basically subsequently in, in Russia is an interesting kind of regional studies uh, process. Uh, the Russian term is krayavidenia. And though the term is not used in this earlier phase, I think it really is these newspapers. There are a number of different other institutions, local statistical committees, local libraries, but this is one of the principal mechanisms or engines or motors for bringing this provincial identity and to some extent even regional identity 
in, into existence this uh, re the regional studies that I mentioned a moment ago. So uh, this is a really important moment, I think, for basically life, intellectual life outside of the two capitals of Moscow and St. Petersburg. You uh, are committed to studying institutions. You've done it before, and you're un and you kind of are unapologetic and countercultural about it. And uh, one of these events that you uh, have that you include in the book is again not the most exciting event. It would sound the creation of something called the Ministry of State Properties. Why is the creation of this institution so of such critical importance for the future? Yeah, the Ministry of State Properties uh, is a there's a really interesting story here. Um, this really becomes uh, also a, a critical institution in a wide variety of different ways. I would point to two, maybe most importantly, for the sake of our conversation here. One is uh, it basically it becomes a major force uh, for agrarian reform in Russia, and I would go so far as to say creates important preconditions for the emancipation of serfs, which occurs in 1861. It also becomes an important engine uh, in resettlement that is moving Russians from, uh, peasants from one part of the country to another. The movement in these earlier stages is comparatively limited, uh, though there is some significant movement. It really becomes a major, um, a major operation later in the 1880s and 90s when the Trans-Siberian Railroad creates the possibility for Russian peasant settlement uh, of Siberia and the, Kazakh, and the Kazakh steppe. What I think is really also important about the, mm, the Ministry of State Properties is that the, it has jurisdiction over a group that's known as state peasants. And in essence, there were sort of broadly speaking, there were three uh, peasant categories in Russia at this time. There were state peasants uh, who were not enserfed. They were actually considered to be free rural inhabitants. There were then crown peasants. Uh, this was about a million people. Uh, they were uh, serfs of the Russian imperial family itself. And then there was the enserfed population. And so crown peasants and serfs, they were enserfed, that is, they were unfree. Uh, and the state peasants that made up probably between maybe 45 and 48% of the population, roughly half, they were actually free rural inhabitants. So the ministry was created to establish jurisdiction, had a sta jurisdiction over these state peasants. And I think one of the ideas fundamentally was that if the ministry could uh, effectuate reform of, for the state peasants, that is for the peasants that in some sense belonged to the state, then it could then on that basis uh, subsequently undertake uh, the emancipation of the serfs, which was an issue that I think most Russian rulers certainly in the 19th century, even a little bit earlier, are thinking about, they understand, I think, sort of intuitively that serfdom is an institution that cannot continue to exist, but it's really unclear how exactly one goes about eliminating the institution. If we think about the United States, of course, we realize that it takes a civil war to, to, eliminate, to eliminate the comparable institution, uh, the compar comparable institution of slavery. So what you have in Russia, I would say, even before 1837, is this extraordinary range of different peasant categories. That is various peoples who are defined by their occupation or their geographical location, in some cases by their ethnic identity, especially if they're not Russian. And what the Ministry of State Properties does in effect is to take all of these weird, strange categories of peasants, each of which has its own rights and responsibilities and obligations, and just sort of dumps them all into the single receptacle, the receptacle of the state peasant category. And so why this is important, among other things, is that what you see, I think, it's a, a critical step here is being taken from this extraordinary diversity of kind of peasant, um, peasant categories towards a single unified Russian peasantry, which of course will only come subsequently after the emancipation of serfs uh, and other elements of reform in the second half of the 19th century. But this is a really fundamental moment when all these diverse categories are simply dumped into this one state peasant bucket. So in beginning of chapter seven, you write, it is a truth readily acknowledged that most people don't think a lot about camels. And what do camels have to do with 1837 and the quiet revolution? So camels are uh, a, a central protagonist, one could say, of uh, the chapter <laughs> to which you're referring, which describes the unsuccessful, uh, really quite disastrous, I would say, attempt uh, on the part of Russia to conquer 
a neighboring Central Asian polity known as the Khanate of Hiva, which was down basically sort of now in what's uh, sort of Western Uzbekistan now on the other side of the Aral Sea. And the problem here was that uh, as Russia was sort of expanding into these steppe regions, which were inhabited by largely Kazakhs in the north and Turkmen uh, to the south, uh, it was encountering uh, raids and destabilization uh, in these uh, steppe regions. And the conclusion uh, on the part of Russian administration, particularly in the regional capital uh, known as Orenburg, was that the problem was that the nomadic populations that were subject to the Khanate of Hiva, uh, Turkmen and certain uh, tribes uh, of Kazakhs, that they, in essence, were utterly and completely out of control and that the problem needed to be solved by disciplining the Khanate itself. And so in the 1830s, we see a series of attempts uh, to uh, try to figure out, you know, what can Russia do in order to discipline this Khanate? A number of measures are undertaken, the creation of a set of fortresses, or at least one or two uh, in the region to try to discipline uh, the nomads there. Uh, and also an attempt actually to uh, simply uh, arrest and confiscate the traders, uh, the very mer merchants uh, from the Khanate of Hiva as a way of kind of basically holding them hostage uh, to try to get the Khanate to change its behavior. But ultimately, all of this proves uh, largely unsuccessful. And so the decision is made finally uh, in somewhere around 1836 or 1837 to undertake a campaign against uh, the Khanate of Hiva. That actually happens in 1839 to 1840, but the preparations, key preparations are actually occurring already in 1837. There's some evidence that the decision itself is actually made uh, at that point. The attempt is, uh, is quite unsuccessful in large measure because it's known as the winter campaign. The, there was a fundamental problem. The issue was how to get across arid steppe in large numbers uh, in order to undertake this attack against uh, the sedentary settlement of Kiva. Uh, it was understood that in the summer it was going to be very difficult. There would be no water on hand, so the decision was taken basically to do it in the winter. As it happened, the winter proved to be exceptionally cold, uh, exceptionally difficult. And so this, uh, this train, uh, if you will, this campaign, uh, eventually has to turn back. Uh, and really the Achilles heel proves to be uh, the camels, because camels were absolutely essential uh, as a matter of logistics, how exactly were you going to carry the weapons, to some extent even the soldiers, but also the food and provisions, you had to have somewhere along the order of 12,000 camels. Uh, Valsidi Perovsky, who was the general governor in Orenburg, he was able to assemble, I think, 10,400 uh, camels, and he actually enlisted Kazakh drivers, they were known as, drivers who would basically, they knew the camels and they would basically, in a sense, drive the camels. And the Kazakhs were really quite bewildered that the Russians would try to undertake a campaign like this in winter. They thought it was a terrible idea that uh, caravans never traveled in this kind of winter weather. But Porovsky uh, was absolutely convinced that this was the only way uh, to do it. Uh, but eventually, just the camels just are dropping like flies. It becomes uh, just almost a mass murder of camels. And eventually, they, uh, the, the campaign has to turn back. And really, it's only a relatively small number. I think 90% of the camels actually perished. Along the way, of course, many men did as well, uh, and uh, in, eventual, in, in essence, the conquest of uh, Hiva only occurs several decades later uh, when the conditions for that are better. So, so what are this? What are the results of this unsuccessful campaign? Um, given that it's unsuccessful, why why is this important? Here, I will take some refuge uh, for the purpose of this book in uh, suggesting, maybe I'll make two points. One is that uh, this was just simply too good, a, too good a story to pass up on. And I will plead guilty to looking for episodes that would lend themselves to good stories for the inclusion of this book. As I say, this campaign actually unfolds in 1839 to 40, but the preparations are occurring already before that. And so I thought it would actually just demonstrate the degree and the nature of Russia's engagement with uh, the East, that is with Central Asia in this case, because I wanted uh, to be sure that the, that the theme of empire was well represented uh, in this book as well. But I think it's also an important moment in the sense that it helps to solidify. There's a, a transitional moment here where the relationship, I think, between Russia and the steppe is changing uh, quite considerably. And it's an important moment in the process of this, these decades, maybe the 1820s and 1830s, 
in a process of incorporating uh, what's now the, the northern bit, certainly, or a large portion of Kazakhstan, the Kazakh steppe, uh, into the Russian uh, empire. So it's, um, it's an, uh, really a central moment, I would say, in the development of Russia's uh, empire in the east. And arguably, there were a few sort of probes before this, but it really is the first sort of uh, major attempt, certainly in the 19th century, to uh, conquer an established Central Asian polity, that is the Khanate of Khiva. Now on to another, uh, another event, which is very much on a territory that you've uh, trodden before, which is the reunion of the Greek Catholics, the Uniate Church, uh, with the Orthodox. And what was that and why was it important? So in this case, I sort of uh, I traced this one uh, unsuccessful case of empire building, if one will, if one will, in the east, and yet, and then in the west, though I think we have actually really a quite striking success. The issue has to do with a very curious uh, ecclesiastical formation known as the Uniate or Greek Catholic Church. We think of all Catholics as being Roman Catholic, but there were actually some so-called Eastern Catholics, and so they were they uh, retained elements of the. Eastern Church practice, in particularly the Slavic or Byzantine uh, liturgy, uh, but at the same time, and for example, married uh, married priests as opposed to celibate ones. But at the same time, they recognized the authority of the Pope, and they uh, spoke the Nicene Creed uh, in the Western fashion as opposed to the Eastern fashion. And so the uh, the Uniate Church had been created in the late 16th century in the lands uh, of Poland, Lithuania, uh, this sort of early modern formation. And then those lands had been incorporated, much, much of them had been incorporated into the Russian Empire with the partitions of Poland in the late 18th, late 18th century. And some of those Uniates or Greek Catholics had been reincorporated into the Orthodox Church already in the 1790s. Uh, but it was really, it was in the 1830s and in 1839 when this process uh, ended specifically that the existence of the uh, Greek Catholic or Uniate Church within the Russian Empire itself was entirely, in term, uh, was entirely terminated. And 1.5 million uh, Greek Catholics, in a sense, sort of overnight became uh, Orthodox. So this chapter, what it does is describes the process by which that uh, mass confessional engineering, which I think really is a quite striking success, how this unfolds beginning in the late 1820s up until really actually into the early 1840s. 1839 is when it formally occurs, but 1837 is actually a critical transitional point in some ways really the issue has been resolved. It's, this is something that happens. It's the first legislative act uh, of 1837. And it's a purely bureaucratic thing, but it's the transfer of uh, the jurisdiction of the religious affairs of this, uh, of this Greek Catholic Church from one entity to the other. And this, for some of the key people involved in the process, this event right there actually itself really represented already the unification, or as the Russians called it, the reunification of the Greek Catholics with orthodoxy, in a sense, it was a it was the proposition was that these originally orthodox people had been, in some ways, tricked or coerced into becoming Catholic, albeit Eastern or Greek Catholic, and now the Russian regime was righting a historical wrong, was reclaiming these people, making them orthodox once again. So the idea of the chapter is to trace the manner in which this unfolds, and I think one has to give. Uh, the Russian Empire. I mean, think what one will morally of converting 1.5 million people, but to the extent that they'd set the goal, they, the regime actually is able to undertake this reunification quite successfully, I would say. There's a, a prominent uh, Greek Catholic hierarch, uh, Bishop Yosef uh, Samashko. He's at the forefront of this. He's actually the leading force, and he eventually then becomes an Orthodox bishop in the aftermath, uh, because he, he converts basically along with his flock. So we have this actually this major sort of success in the Western part of the empire. And it's one that I think actually does a lot to try to help to consolidate the idea of a single Russian nation that will include people. The people in question here are largely Belarusian, but by the conception of the time, Belarusians and Ukrainians were understood to be basically Russian, uh, simply exhibiting some regional particularities in terms of culture, in terms of dialect, and so forth. So this was, a, in a sense, a reclaiming, if one will, of these, uh, of, of these Belarusians for the Russian nation. So the Russian railway 
uh, first begins in 1837. Uh, and that perhaps needs a little less explanation since uh, Russia becomes very famously associated with railways, I guess because of the Trans-Siberian Railway. Um, but what were the... Uh, what were the origin? How how big was it, and what were its origins? And did people in Russia see that it was going to be how immensely important it would be for conquering the vast, you know, the vast uh, distances uh, that are part of of Russia's terrain? Yeah. So the first uh, railway indeed appears. It opens formally in October of 1837. The principal force behind its construction was actually uh, an uh, Austrian subject. Uh, von Gerstner was his name. Uh, and it was actually a relatively short line. It was simply from uh, the imperial capital, St. Petersburg, to uh, a place called Tsarske Selo, and a little bit further to a place called Pavlovsk. This is a; these were uh, sort of uh, palaces and parks of the imperial family. Uh, so it was only about uh, twenty-five or twenty-six uh, kilometers all in all. The idea was to do a kind of test railway. There were actually real concerns about whether or not railways would actually work in colder climates. Uh, Railways across the world were still relatively new in this period, and there were real concerns about snow and cold in a climate as as northerly uh, as Russia. There was a great deal of skepticism, I think, uh, within the autocracy itself. There were many who believed that it was better to invest in the development of rivers and canals and also roads, and there had been really quite extensive investments in these uh, over over the time. In a lot of ways, I think Russia's transport system, precisely in light of the size of the country, was really quite a marvel, I think, by the uh, early 19th century. Yet at the same time, there were serious deficiencies uh, in the sense that uh, rivers would run dry in August and early September. They would freeze over for a large portion of the year, which made it difficult to transport. Uh, there were ways in which uh, even provisioning the imperial capital at some points, uh, the capital now has uh, 450,000 people, that this also is in some danger potentially. And I think there's a general sense that also railways perhaps represent uh, the future. But there are, these, there are these words of doubt. There's a fear, for example, that uh, r- railroads will become uh, m- instruments for the spread of revolutionary or uh, democ- democratic ideas. So there's a, actually a great debate that occurs in Russia in sort of the mid-1830s. The interest of Nicholas I, the emperor, who again is often characterized as being uh, conservative, interested in stasis and stagnation, he actually proves to be a dynamic force here. Ultimately, it's his call whether or not to build. He does make the argument in favor of that. And so the, uh, the uh, railway is constructed. And it's just fascinating, I think, to to experience uh, vigorously, basically, uh, what it's like, basically, to see a railway appear for the first time. We have these extraordinary accounts of people riding on the railway. And I think it's really worth stopping and just thinking for a moment, you know, we who fly in airplanes at 500 miles an hour and, you know, normally just in everyday city driving, in a place like Las Vegas, where I live, we're often driving uh, 45, 50, 55 miles an hour. For people to have suddenly had the opportunity to travel 25 or 30 miles an hour, this was speed beyond speed that they had ever actually experienced before. And so there's this re- these really remarkable accounts of what I think it meant in a kind of, uh, in a, almost a visceral sense, to enter modernity in, in the form of basically this, uh, this, this railway. And so that was part of the aspiration of that chapter was to capture the sense of novelty, to capture that sense of, of that new experience uh, for those people who, who uh, actually had the opportunity to ride the railway for the first time. Yeah, what, what I love about this when I, I was reading it was the almost remarkable similarity, sometimes like word for word, and certainly emotion for emotion with Americans of the same period uh, describing a railway. Um, you could line up some of the accounts that you have very neatly with the last couple pages of Hawthorne's House of the Seven Gables, uh, in which the railway leaving Salem, Massachusetts is a metaphor for modernity uh, leaving behind uh, the dark past of Salem and the the crabbed hand, the crabbed iron hand of tradition. And they're leaving it at, at the remarkable speed of 40 miles an hour, um, which yeah. is 10 times faster than they probably ever have traveled in their life. It's like us uh, being going from a, a, a transcontinental jet to leaving, leaving, going into orbit. 
um, that would be the that must have been the feeling of speed that yeah, they had. Yeah, when I they think were it's going, safe to uh, 25, 30, 40 miles an hour. I think that's I think that's right. One would pr- presume that most people had uh, I should say some people the fastest that they probably ever traveled was basically a gallop on a horse, uh, you know, which can be quite considerable, but nonetheless uh, quite limited. I think at the same time in relation to what these uh, what even these early trains could actually do. So 1837 ends with another um, happenstance event, which is the burning of the Winter Palace. Um, who's to say if that's a bigger deal than Pushkin uh, being uh, killed in a duel? But it happens, and uh, it's a fascinating event. And what I particularly love for it about it is that it's so metaphorical for the rest of the book, which I think is probably you must have delighted in that as well when you put it together with the other sort of anecdotes and events that you have collected in, 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 in 1837. Yeah, that's right. I think it's a, it's a real, it's a real great story. And it, this was the realization. I had not been aware that this had even happened to the winter palace at all, let alone in 1837. I assume that the winter palace one sees today, which is the state hermitage museum. That this was, this was the original palace that was constructed basically in the middle of the 18th century. It turns out that's not the case at all. And when I learned that it happened, that it happened in 1837, for me, that was the ultimate uh, decisive moment when I said, okay, this, this book simply has to be written. I simply have to do this. It's a really interesting story. Uh, the fire uh, occurs, uh, basically, it burns for some 36 hours or so, sort of in the middle of December of 1837. I'll note that uh, the heir to the throne, uh, along with his father, who had also done some traveling in 1837, they arrived back from all of those travels in essence, just a few days before uh, this happens. Uh, the fire, uh, it's kind of entire, it's not entirely clear what exactly caused the fire. Basically, there was a structural defect, I think, with one of the, uh, the stovepipes that came from uh, the basement. I think one of the reasons why we don't know uh, 100% entirely what this was about was because probably this design fault had something to do with a decision taken by the emperor himself. So people figured best not to talk too much about this. But in any event, uh, the emperor was at uh, the theater actually that evening. He learned uh, from a messenger that the, that the palace was burning. Uh, he made his way there uh, quickly to the palace. And indeed, uh, within a relatively short period of time, the, the entire edifice was, in complete, uh, was, uh, was, was being completely destroyed by fire. It was an, an astonishing spectacle uh, to judge by the accounts that we have. Uh, and if uh, people want to go to the website for the book, one can see that an image of that fire, uh, that very dramatic image, is precisely the one that I chose uh, to put on the cover of the book, precisely because uh, it is so dramatic. And so, uh, really, it was a matter only uh, all people could do, I think, on that evening of the 17th of December, 1837, was to try to save some of the most valuable uh, items from the palace. And so there was the enlistment of a large number of soldiers and guards who were basically carrying things, uh, throwing things that were not breakable through windows, et cetera, et cetera. But eventually there came a point when it was clear that there was nothing else that could be saved. The critical thing actually was to try to save the actual hermitage, which was a sort of an appendix an annex to the building which housed the uh, the what quite substantial art collections. That actually that building actually was saved. So what we see now, there is the original, but the palace itself burned down. And what's really I think particularly remarkable about this story was the fact that within really days of the destruction of the palace, the emperor has made the decision to rebuild and to rebuild uh, quickly. He sets the goal of actually const- reconstructing the palace by Easter of 1839. So that's about 15 months away. So there's not even a year and a half, a little bit more than a year. And the idea also is that the Winter Palace will be, uh, at least externally, will be identical to the one that had actually been destroyed. And here again, we see some concern on the part of the ruler for the potential political implications of an event like this. Uh, There's a real sense of pessimism, a real worry that this could, for example, begin some sort of revolutionary movement or some sort of movement for democratization in the country, that it's a real black eye for the regime. And so uh, the regime feels it has to move. Nicholas I feels he has to move quickly, and he has to try to resurrect the palace uh, in a form as identical as possible, again, externally above all, uh, so that it, it, it can seem as though the fire 
never actually occurred. So there's a real interesting story, first of all, about a kind of national mobilization for the purposes of actually reconstructing the palace, which in large measure actually is achieved. Uh, a, an opening does happen on Easter night, that is Saturday into Sunday of 1839. Uh, and there's a way in which also I think the, the palace uh, already had begun to occupy a particular place as belonging to the people as well as to the sovereign. And I think this sense actually is reinforced uh, in this process of reconstruction. There's, of course, a lot of propaganda in all of this, uh, in many of the events that I'm talking about. But these are the ways in which many people, at least the regime, tried to, in a sense, shape the narrative about what had happened and about the reconstruction itself. Let's um, step back and talk about the book as as a whole and the project as a whole. I have a couple questions about it that I probably had within 15 minutes of, of picking up the book. And one of them was that uh, you've explained why you uh, began this project with misgivings um, about, uh, uh, you, as you say, the very first words of the book, I believe, is anyone writing about 1837 has some explaining to do. Um, and you've explained why that is, uh, given the way that this period is typically seen by historians of Russia, but did you have misgivings about uh, about the frivolity of just talking about one uh, one year in history and lumping together the things that happened there? I mean, my goodness, this is the kind of book the journalists write, and here you are, you're a respected historian of Russia, you you're tenured for crying out loud, and you're you're putting together a book about 1837. Yeah, I guess I did have those. I did have that sense of that worry. There was a point at which it felt silly and self-indulgent. But I think for me, the issue was that I began to sort of, I, I, the idea had been rolling around in my head somehow. I can't remember when exactly it appeared, but I was chair of my department, which is a miserable job. And one day, instead of doing what I should have been doing as chair of the department, I just started, started to develop a kind of a book proposal. What would, if I were to propose this to a press, what would I actually say? And as I began to write that, really just on the basis of the, the basic knowledge that I had in some of these episodes I didn't even really know fully about, of course, at the time, I put this together. and I just found myself more and more sort of attracted with the idea. I found it more and more interesting. I found fascinating the prospect also of just being able to talk about such diverse things. Uh, writing diversely as opposed to having to sort of uh, focus on one thing and to spend years of my life doing this, I could really focus on a wide variety of things and actually myself get to know Russia and its history better by focusing on industry and peasants and culture and intellectual life, et cetera, et cetera. So the more I engaged with it, the more I thought that it was actually worth doing, you know, presented the idea at a couple of sort of conferences or workshops and this sort of thing. And there seemed to be a real reaction that people uh, kind of liked the idea, or at least weren't hostile towards it. And it occurred to me that one of the things that I, that, that I could do to make the book really, I think, attractive and maybe allow it to gain traction among wider circles of people was to write it, uh, first of all, in a very concise form that as I, it's about 200 pages in all. It has 10 chapters. And each chapter is really is uh, just a kind of easily di digestible entity, but also to write it in a kind of style that would make it uh, kind of interesting, perhaps amusing, wry at times, uh, rely on you know sort of choice, choice quotes from original sources that would allow basically the processes, the people, the events, in some sense, to come to life. So I think in a lot of ways one can say, uh, yeah, you're a tenured instructor. I think this actually the, one of the beauties of tenure, I think, is that it, it allows <laughs> one to do exactly this kind of thing. That is it to should tenure. be. Yeah, that, yeah, that should I mean, be the case. I mean, to, call, to say that there's a risk involved with this, I mean, I suppose there was a danger that people say this is silly and stupid. I suppose that there's that... that possibility still exists. But I think the idea of uh, tenure and, and just basically being established is I think it does allow one to take, I don't know, certain kinds of risks, I suppose. Uh, I don't want to overstate the issue of risk here. But the thing that's really interesting is that, you know, just based on the first couple of months, I mean, this book has, I think, received, you know, received sort of more attention, greater traction than anything I've ever written. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that, uh, it's been successful in that regard so far. I mean, we'll see when reviews come out. But also, I think that more, maybe more fundamentally, I, I do think that there is a way in which academic historians really need to be able to speak to broader audiences. And this was my attempt to sort of at least move in that direction and to see if I could do this. If I could, this is a book that 
simultaneously a colleague who's a specialist in the 19th century in Russia would read this, even knowing a lot of it already, but still would find something interesting and curious in it, would nonetheless see pieces put together in ways that he or she had not ever thought about before, but also that an undergraduate student at an institution like the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, could pick this uh, book up and read it with profit, or someone like you who's not a, uh, a specialist on Russian history, has some familiarity with Russian culture based on the literature that you've read and so forth, but could read a book like this with, uh, with profit uh, and with enjoyment above all. So mm -hmm. I think those were the principal motivations for me uh, to try to do this. I really had a great time doing it. And so I would uh, encourage people to write, you know, these kinds of books, at least at a certain stage, if they have something to say that can have this kind of broader resonance uh, with readerships. Well, that's a, that's a really nice summary. I wanted to press you about one thing. Um, mm -hmm. You've obviously thought about style a lot beforehand. Um, your bio on the UNLV website reveals that uh, you've given two conference presentations in verse. And Correct. one, according to the meter of Eugene O'Negan by Pushkin, mm -hmm. to get back to where we began. So you've been thinking about style long before you began this book. And I'm curious your thoughts on, and I think that you touched on something else in the course of this. You, you thought about a style appropriate to the, the way this book was constructed, which is, I used to think yeah. that I was the only person that worried about such things. Uh, you had to have a certain brisk style to go from railway to Ministry of State properties to, you know, uniate church to da, 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 to camels, and you achieve it um, because there's there is it's uh, you're moving through a kaleidoscope rather than through a narrative or through a, down a stream, and that works really nicely. And I and I suspect you've been thinking about how to do things like this for a lot longer than you a lot before you you wrote that book proposal when you were chair. Yeah, I mean, I don't know when I really started to think about it. I mean, I guess I, I realized that there was a, a potential lightness. And I, I, and I don't want to detract from the seriousness of the topic, but I, I think the book really does reveal something very, very important and significant about Russia that people maybe haven't really seen, bef seen before, certainly haven't seen it in this way. Uh, but I think the goal of accessibility was really the critical thing. And the idea just of writing in a way that people would find it in intriguing. I, you know, I thought about, like, for example, introductions and how, you know, in many scholarly books, you know, you, you finish the introduction, you're already exhausted and you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to begin the first chapter. And so my goal was to, you know, so the first chapters, I don't know, like six pages or so. The idea was to really quickly introduce uh, the basic idea here and then to move as a uh, pr present uh, the argument, which has to do with this being, a very important transformative time, a quiet revolution, if one will, that leads to the greater kind of integration and unification of the country. But to do all that fairly briefly without reference to a huge scholarly literature that the readership that I was trying to reach, at least potentially, was really not so much concerned about. So that idea of accessibility was really important. I thought a lot about making each one of these sketches. I mean, there are 10 episodes. Uh, we've gone through all of them here in this interview, which has been great. Uh, there are 10 episodes that organizationally it was very easy, uh, one chapter for each episode. Uh, it was a little bit harder to think about how to link them. That became a, a sort of real challenge. But what I wanted to be able to do was to have a situation whereby each one of these chapters could at least theoretically stand by itself. Yeah, uh, because you have Oxford Scholarship Online, you, one can sort of buy or access these chapters individually. So the idea is that if somebody, a student comes to an instructor and says, well, what can I read sort of quickly on the first railway in Russia? Well, there are a number of things, but by the way, there's this really kind of short, brief chapter which cites some of the main things that you'd otherwise need to, need to read. There it is. And so the idea was to make these sort of, uh, these individual capsules, I suppose, uh, freestanding, at least in theory, but of course, really the, they're forced to reside fundamentally, I suppose, in their cumulative effect. Mm -hmm. That is, the idea was for somebody to come to this and say, oh, 1837, quiet revolution, we'll see about this. I'm rather quite skeptical about it, et cetera, et cetera. But that the accumulation of these various episodes and the ways in which I've tried at least to trace their, their echoes or the shadow that they cast further on into the 19th century, that this would ultimately be uh, was, this would make the case 
that this actually is a very, very important and dynamic time. So the idea was, uh, there were a number of things going on here, but I guess above all, in terms of style, the issue was to think about how can one write in such a way that it actually becomes a, a pleasure to read without, though, I think, compromising, you know, real and significant academic standards. And so I tried to find that middle middle road here. It's going to be up, to, I think, to colleagues and other readers to determine whether or not I was successful in that regard. My guest today has been Paul W. Wirth. He's the author of 1837, Russia's Quiet Revolution. Paul, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. You're welcome. I proposed it might be a hoot, and indeed it was. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.